0: As Christians, often when we think about going or coming to church, and particularly this church, we can often view church and the gathering of the saints as we do face masks, or seat belts for that matter. Because when we come to church, there are a few things that commonly come to mind, maybe not for all of you, but there are things from the spiritual Learn more about God's Word. Fellowship with believers. Have our kids learn Bible stories. Sing worshipful songs. To the practical, I want to dress appropriately. What can we do to make sure we're on time? Where can I serve? Whom to grab lunch with afterwards? Where to sit? How to navigate COVID and its related regulations? But why do I say that then is sometimes... The way we view face masks during this time of this pandemic or seat belts as we always have. Because in the midst of all that goes on in the local church, even behind the scenes and in your lives, the lives of the congregation, there's one aspect of church that is most often mentioned but less often practiced the glory of God. We get busy. We go through the motions. We do things even though our heart isn't in it. Masks, seatbelts. We forget about the biggest issue. The highest reason. The greatest motivation. The glory of God. We can go through an entire Sunday. We can sing these words. We can listen to the sermon. We could preach the sermon. We could greet people. We can write down prayer requests and go home and say, wait a minute, in all that frantic trying to talk to who I wanted to talk to, how, getting to church, getting the kids ready, getting the baby diapered, I forgot to make sure that my heart glorified God in all of it. Having the right heart as we make our way to church can be difficult. It's busy. Our lives are frenetic, to be honest. And in all of that practical But necessary busy work, even for those who serve. These things don't set up themselves. Laying of cable, covering the cable so the rest of us don't trip, zooming in, making sure the sound is right, tuning the guitar, placing the mics. And then for all of you who aren't behind the scenes, even just getting here on time, we lose sight of the why of our presence, the why of the reason we are here, to glorify God, God's glory, for He is worthy. And as we have seen, this is a danger that we can easily fall into, especially when it comes to communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And this morning as we continue our story of that, our study rather, of the Lord's Supper, Paul continues and cuts to the quick by giving a warning regarding communion Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. We're in the middle of a four-part series, and he continues. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Like any warning, this is a call to action. You understand that? We are given warnings, not just so we know the warnings, so that we will do something. So we will have an exit plan for our kids when the earthquake hits so that we have fire extinguishers prepared if there is a fire. Warnings are a call to action, and so our outline this morning from this warning is three steps in preparing for communion. Heed the warning and take these steps. Three steps in preparing for communion. Because we've seen how in uh, this letter to the Corinthians... Paul has addressed that these believers 2,000 years ago are actually perverting the Lord's Supper. We saw this in verses 17 through 22. Their particular perversion of the Lord's Supper was basically a form of prejudice where the rich were neglecting the poor and even letting them go hungry and even creating factions based on economic prosperity or lack thereof. It was selfishness, pride we saw the significance of what communion means in verses 23 through 26. And both passages giving us an understanding of the importance of communion and subsequently the importance of how we approach communion. So this morning we talk about how to make sure we have the right perspective, the right heart, the right preparation before we take those symbolic, yes, but very important elements of the Lord's table three steps in preparing for communion and just as with any threat or warning we are to respond so the subject of the warning does not happen to us the first step in preparing for communion is prize the significance prize the significance of the elements of the service of everything let me read for you again verse 27 where i get this point Paul writes, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We've seen the significance of the Lord's table throughout this passage. Specifically, in last week's passage, we saw that the bread represents Christ's body that was sacrificed for us, for our sin. The cup represents the blood which initiates the new covenant. And the practice of taking both of those is a proclamation of the gospel. This is a quick review of what we saw last week. And from all of that, Paul draws a conclusion, a logical consequence starting at verse 27 and indicated by the word, therefore. Because it is so important, because of what these elements represent and what you are doing in taking those elements, Therefore. And then he goes into this warning. So after laying down the significance of the Lord's table, he now points a finger directly at the one who takes it in an unworthy manner. But what does it mean to take communion unworthily? First, understand that because of the very thing we commemorate in the Lord's table, Christ's sacrifice for us, we are saved. Those of us who have committed our lives to the Lord, accepted Him as our Lord and repented of our sin, we are saved. We're believers. We're Christians. And what that means, listen carefully, as Christians, we are positionally, that is, in our position, our standing before God because of Christ, we are positionally worthy to take communion. However, we may be conditionally or practically unworthy at the present moment because of sin in our lives. Sin hurts our fellowship with God. So anything in our lives that hurts that relationship must be taken seriously. Anger, Pride, lack of love, love of money, not giving to the church, laziness, lack of prayer, all of those things we understand are clearly commanded in Scripture. And there are some things that we don't take as seriously, that we don't take as heavily. But if they are commanded in Scripture, they are sin. If you've broken one point of the law, you've broken the whole law. That's the point. It doesn't matter if you, in your mind, or society, or even the church you're in, the church culture thinks, well, this is lesser and this is bigger. Obviously, some have more practical ramifications, but Jesus made it very clear that in the eyes of God, anger is the same as murder. Now, we understand murder has more practical ramifications. Even when you repent, you will have lifelong guilt for the life you have taken. I assume especially so if that life had a family and children, things like that. So there are more practical ramifications. But as far as God is concerned, it is the same. And so monetary greed is the same as adultery in God's eyes. Sin is sin. We must take it all seriously. Not praying, not evangelizing. Is just as bad as actively lying, deceiving your boss or your spouse. It's all breaking the law. And we need to keep in mind that any relationship is two ways, right? It's a two-way street, give and take, compromise, meet your halfway. It's not enough if you are happy with God. I'm happy with my relationship with God. Things are good. That's not enough. You want to make sure he is happy with you. Now, your position, again, will never change because you are saved. It's based on the work of Christ, not your works. Praise God for that. So your position of salvation, you can never lose your salvation. Your position will never change. But he doesn't like your sin. He doesn't like it when you sin. It grieves him. It grieves the Holy Spirit. All the more because in this relationship, unlike any other two-way relationship, he is holy. He is your creator. You belong to Him. And so though you may be fine with your sin, your lifestyle, your patterns of behavior, no matter how well you justify them, you need to make sure that you see them from God's perspective. And this relates directly to what Paul says the Corinthians are doing back in verses 20-22. through But we understand that God cares about other sins as well. It's not that you can come in with a sinful heart to take communion. That you've just lied to your kids this morning to get here. Let's say it's a, a Sunday, we're taking communion. You lied to your kids so you could get here on time. You come in with pride and fear of man. You're not worshiping. You're almost scoffing at the lyrics. And you say, well, according to 1 Corinthians 11, I am not being prejudiced against the poor, and refusing to share my food with them, and so I can take communion in a worthy manner. No, that's not what he's saying. That is an example of sin. All sin that is not dealt with in in the right way, when you come to the elements, makes you take communion in an unworthy manner. We need to see things from God's perspective. There are things that in your mind you don't even think are sin. You, are, you think they're okay. And at the risk of sounding like one of those pastors, one of those churches, I bring up finances because I think, especially here in the Bay Area, that's one of the most common, common thoughts. Oh, I, I give to them, and I, and I'm, I, I really let, I p- let people uh, borrow my car and use my house and stuff, and so uh, I don't need to give to the church. And you're okay with that. You think that's okay. You've justified it. But that's sin. Or we can use the same thought, the same pattern with anything. Well, yeah, I know that was bad, but hey, I'm not looking at stuff online. It's just a fleeting glance at that cute barista or whatever. I'm not doing anything. I'm faithful to my spouse. No. It's still bad. It's still sin. We need to see things from God's perspective. And this is not just about what the Corinthians were doing, but also about what we're doing, what we do, not just at the Lord's Supper, but also before the Lord's Supper in our daily lives. And this theme is found throughout the Scriptures in that God desires a right heart attitude in any aspect of worship. Not Sunday worship, any aspect of worship. And to clarify, any aspect of your life should be worship. One of Christ's biggest rebukes of the Jews of his day was that they were going through the motions, but that their hearts were far from him. Remember this? Listen as I read Matthew 15, 7 and 8, speaking to the leaders of the Jews, the great teachers of the law, the Pharisees. He says, You hypocrites. Now, we read the Gospels and, and we say, well, naturally, these were the enemies of God. These were the people who were putting legal, legalistic burdens on the Jewish people, God's people. And so we come with that mindset. But you've got to imagine that Jesus saying this to R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, that is how jarring it would have been to the people who are hearing this. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, and then he quotes the Old Testament, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And we see this. The Pharisees were saying, oh yeah, I'm of God. You need to do this. Look at me. I'm holy. I'm righteous. Listen to what I teach. But let's bring it home. Honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. Maybe you heard Kyle read the passage and you're following along in your Bible or your Bible app, but you you weren't there. There There's an unconfessed sin that's just pulling you away from fellowship with God. Maybe you've sung these songs a million times and today was a million and one, but you didn't think about them. You weren't worshiping. You weren't concentrating. You honor Him with your lips, but your heart is far away from Him. Then two times he tells the Pharisees that they need to learn the meaning of Hosea 6.6, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. He's talking to the Old Testament believers. You can sacrifice all the bulls that you want, all the doves, all the animals. But what God cares about is compassion. That is, what God cares about is the heart. You can come every week. You could give all your money. You could be the loudest singer. You could be the, 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 the most helpful helper. But He wants your heart. He wants your heart. To put it in our context, God desires the right heart attitude. And not just showing up and putting bread and juice in your mouth. One of the biggest ways we take communion in an unworthy manner is to just go through the motions, having a ritualistic mindset devoid of any emotion or any thinking through of its significance and thereby not seeing any need to confess your sin before taking. On the other end of the spectrum, you can take communion unworthily by thinking that the elements somehow impart extra merit to your soul, that it somehow advances God's work on the cross for you, changes your position in His eyes, or even thinking it's necessary for salvation or to remain saved to take communion. That also, with that mindset, is taking it in an unworthy manner. See, this Greek word unworthily can refer to the measuring of weights on a scale, a balanced scale. You know what that is? The scale with two sides. We don't use them often today. Probably the most common way you see them is uh, Lady Justice, that, that, that statue. She holds one in her hand, the scales of justice, I believe they're called. They used to use this, or they still use this in the marketplace uh, in Albania where I used to live. You'd go out, and they'd, you know, the, the different farmers would come in, and they'd, they'd sell at like a... We'd call it a farmer's market, but it's just their regular market. That's where you buy your, your produce on a daily basis. And they have those scales with these little brass weights, And they've been doing it long enough so that when you you put your few stalks of celery or your broccoli, they can kind of gauge. And so they, they put the appropriate weights and they keep adjusting it until it's even. Then they look at the weights they put on and they know that it matches how much you've bought. And then they charge you per kilo there, per pound here. You know the picture, right? Two pans connected to a beam. And when each side holds an equal weight, you have balance. And when one side weighs more than the other, you have misalignment, and that's the word unworthy, unworthy here in First Corinthians 11. In terms of the Lord's table, you have the weight of communion dropping low because of your wrong attitude on the other side, which is too light and is not equal to the heaviness of communion. And thus you take it unworthily. It's a great picture. We need to fix our perspective of communion and of the Lord so when we take the elements, the balance is equal, or at least as humanly as possible. That we revere and weigh heavily the reality and the significance of communion. In our verse this morning, Paul goes on to say that if you take the elements unworthily for any reason you are, quote, guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's quite significant, but what does it mean? Guilty, obviously, is a judicial term. In this context, it means that Christians are answerable to God for the abuse of His supper. To be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ means that your attitude in taking communion does not reflect what the elements symbolize. Let me help you understand this with an illustration. When you turn on the news, and they're highlighting someone or a group of people that are angry with things in our country, and sometimes they are burning or trampling on the American flag, they are not making a statement about a piece of cloth that has stars and stripes on it. In fact, they would be upset if that's what you thought. They are making a statement about what that piece of cloth represents, the United States of America. In the same way, a Christian who just goes through the motions, comes with unconfessed sin, or fails to think deeply about the meaning of communion isn't just guilty of dishonoring the ordinance of communion or the elements, He is guilty of dishonoring, like that flag, the one that it represents. And that's what Paul means when he says, when you take it in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. You're not guilty of the juice and the bread. You're not guilty of wasting the church's money or wasting that juice and that wafer, wasting the usher's time back when we would pass it out row to row, you are guilty of dishonoring the one that those elements represent, and specifically the sacrifice of the one, the death on the cross. And as we saw last week, not only a sacrifice, but the entirety of the meaning of the new covenant, and believers saved. So the first step in preparing for communion is to prize the significance. Get it, understand it, meditate on it. But how do we keep from partaking in an unworthy manner? And that leads us to our second step in preparing for communion, practice self-examination. Practice self-examination. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The word but, or then, in the ESV, signifies what the believer is to do rather than take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner and thereby be guilty of the blood, uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says, quite simply, we are to examine ourselves. Obviously, the examination is based on Scripture, but what exactly are we looking for? Paul doesn't specify here, but thankfully, we have the entirety of the New Testament. And elsewhere, he uses the same Greek word, exam, examine, and tells us two different major categories or areas of what we should be looking for in this self-examination before communion, but also on a regular basis. The first is whether or not you are truly a Christian. Now before you say okay get that you're talking to unbelievers and you check that off and kind of tune out to the second point I invite you to turn ahead a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. And as you turn there I want to give you other words without looking you don't need to look there other words that Paul has used in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians to address or call these people that he is writing to. He has called them beloved. He has called them brethren. He has called them saints, and now he says, "Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves." Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Every person, pastors included, elders included, deacons included, every person who believes themselves to be a Christian would do well to examine themselves to see if they are indeed a Christian. If that test is passed, There is a second test involved in this self examination, and I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. If you turn to 2 Corinthians, you're very close. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. This is the second type of examination that we see Paul calls for for Christians. He says, each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. In other words, now that you know you're a Christian, examine your works. Examine your obedience. Examine your heart. Examine if you are living the way God wants you to live. Now, in this particular verse, I'm going to give you a little mini-sermon within our sermon because I want to bring out a few nuances about what Paul says here in Galatians 6.4, and really it connects to what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 11. The first is this examination of our faith, of our lives as believers, is a continuous command. We see this in the Greek tense, the Greek grammar. So this is something we are to do constantly on a regular basis, not just when you feel like you're struggling, not just when you know there's a big sin that you, ha- you are having trouble dealing with, but all the time. It's not the kind of test that once you pass, you're good to go for the rest of your life. Um, this was true of many of our exams, you understand, in college. Many of us got through high school and college this way. You cram the night before, and then that morning on the test, you basically vomited all out on that piece of paper, or I don't know how they do tests now in school, on that iPad or computer or that hologram. I don't know what's going on these days. Uh, but back in most of our day, you know, you write it down. And then you literally, as you're walking out, people are like, hey, what was the answer to number five? I, I don't know. I can't even remember what, what subject. I mean, you, you forgot it all. But you aced the exam, but you just, you're just you like, I have no need to remember this. I don't want to study this. I hated this class, and I'm just going to cram, dump, and then I'm through. We, we can't view this self-examination of our Christian lives this way, okay? This is more closer to that physical exam that you have with your doctor, hopefully on an annual basis, because you never know what kind of Malady or disease will creep up on you. You don't say, ah, haven't seen the doctor in 10 years because I haven't been sick. We understand there are things that by the time we feel anything, it's really bad. Cancer and other cancerous related types of diseases. And so we go for uh, annual or biannual checkup. And then what do we do? We do something about it. We change our diet. We get shots. We go to chemo. We see a specialist. We get a second opinion, right? Um, In this one, don't get a second opinion. The Bible is the only (laughs) fact, not opinion that you need. Don't take my analogies too far. But we need to do this on a regular basis, the second point I want to bring out about this is this is a command to all believers. In Galatians 6, 4, it says, Each one, everyone, med, must examine his own work. The wor- this work of scrutiny is to be done by every person on himself. Nobody is exempt, and nobody is to disregard examining himself or herself, especially not to just focus on other people. Examine yourself. Thirdly, an examination of this sort presupposes an external standard. Right? You go to a doctor because they're trained as a doctor. They understand biology. They, they understand vi- virology. They understand things about the body and diseases and sicknesses and bones and muscles and things like that. They understand. They have an external standard. You cannot have a successful medical physical unless there is a standard of what healthy looks like, what a healthy cell should look like, what a properly functioning arm or leg looks like, sounds like. Our standard and the type of examination spoken of here, of course, is the Word of God. Fourthly, we are to examine ourselves so that we can boast in the Lord for what He has done. I know the, the English can be a little confusing, confusing rather. We boast in the Lord. We look, and if we see that things are going well, that we are obeying, that we are striving, then we praise God for that. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back, not so we can be proud, and even in the clear choice of words here, his own work, not so we can criticize or look down on others. I will say to you what I say to my boys, worry about your own heart. Worry about your own heart. Now, of course, there is a place for biblical rebuke and confrontation and iron sharpening iron. But, and Jesus talks about this, but even Jesus says, first deal with the log in your own eye before dealing with the speck in another's eye. Because we are talking, after all, about your own ability to take communion, not his or her or that guy's. And if you truly understand the seriousness and severity and significance of communion, you will be, frankly, too overwhelmed to be bothered by that guy's sin. Why is he taking communion? You'll be quivering in your own seat. So to summarize these two general areas of self-examination, you could simply say it's faith and works. Do you have true saving faith? And if you do, how are your works? And we understand works in the Christian life in the Bible includes having the right heart. This self-examination, again, as I mentioned earlier, is not just to get test results. Hmm, ah, got a B plus, not bad, shuffle it away. But it's to take those results and fix the problems. One of my favorite teachers I've ever had in my life was in junior high. His name was Mr. Smith. He allowed us to call him Smitty. He taught the languages. In my junior high, there were two. He uh, was fluent in both Spanish and French. He taught both. It's a very small school, all-boys school. I took French. And he was one of those teachers that we really liked because he wasn't your conventional teacher. Um, looking back, this is not the best thing. Uh, but he used profanity quite a bit. But he used profanity because he was passionate about us learning the languages. He wasn't just doing it as a job. He cared about us. He was passionate that we excelled. And I remember one particular day, it was the day after our exams, and he passed back our tests. And as all students do, the first thing you do is you look at the grade. And a lot of people would just look at the grade and just kind of put their test in their folder in their backpack. But what Smitty would do is he would go through the test so that you would know all the right answers in case you got some wrong. You've experienced this. But I remember that a lot of the students just kind of checked out. They weren't even following along as he was going over the exam. And he stopped and he exploded and said, all you care about is your bleeping grades. And he was saying, follow along so you learn from your mistakes. You see, he was saying, rather than just know your grade and just care about that, care about why you got that grade. Learn from your mistakes. Look at the exam and fix the problems. And in the same way, the Christian's spiritual self-examination is not just to see where we land on the scale of holiness, but to go back and fix the mistakes and be holier and excel still more. Fill in the blank. All you care about is what? All you care about is your reputation at church. All you care about is being a good dad. All you care about is being a good wife. Or do you care about everything? Do you care about holiness? Do you care about the things that only you and God know about? Do you care about the things that frankly, may have absolutely zero practical implication on anyone at church, anyone in your family, anything in your life, but it is sin. We need to deal with it. Sin confessed, repentance manifested, reconciliation sought, restitution made. And on a practical note, this is very helpful in the midst of our busy and frenetic lives, because as Christians, we need to be constantly evaluating ourselves to look for sin. So much sin we don't even recognize, we don't even know is there. That's why we need the body. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be engaged in worship, reading the Bible, listening to sermons so we know, so we know what's there, so we know what's sin. But quite simply, this is helpful because it gives us a regularly scheduled opportunity to examine our lives. Listen, there, if, you're, if you're really busy, let me rephrase that. Same statement, different words. If you live in the Bay Area and you are alive, it's okay to put it on your Google Calendar your task list. There's nothing unspiritual about that. Examine self. If you're so busy that you have to uh, schedule date night, which is, frankly, single people, very normal, it's a good thing. If you need to schedule mommy-daughter time, daddy-son time, if you need to schedule going to the grocery store, that's okay. You can schedule these things too. Schedule your quiet times. Schedule your self examination. Schedule a drive out to Half Moon Bay or Pacifica. Look at the ocean and just self examine. Or just do it on your commute tomorrow morning. Practice self examination. We've seen prize of significance. Practice self examination. Thirdly, our third and final step in preparing for communion, perceive the symbolism. Perceive the symbolism. Get the symbolism. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. There's a threat there. There's a warning. The eating and drinking here are still, of course, the elements of the Lord's table. And we already saw in verse 27 that the one who takes of the elements in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is, to dishonor he whom the bread and cup represent. Then we saw that the best defense against this trespass is to practice a thorough self-examination. Thorough being self-examination plus response to that examination. And now we see that if that self-examination or its results are ignored, then judgment is the result. And again, we are talking to and about believers. Judgment as in a court of law, is the result of an action or a decision on the part of the great judge. And the judgment for believers is chastisement. It is discipline. It is not the wrath that only unbelievers face. This is different than condemnation, which the unbeliever faces and will be distinguished when we get to verse 32 next week. And we'll talk about this more in depth next week as we see what the judgment on the Corinthians was, but suffice it to say God disciplines His children because He loves His children. It's the same way, reason you discipline your children. It's the same reason, though you may have not realized it, and I know there are unfortunately sinful exceptions, it's the same reason your parents disciplined you, whether it's spanking or sit in the corner or whatever it may be. Broomstick down the back holding books. Anyone have that? No? No Chinese in here? I'm just kidding. It's more a Korean thing. But we discipline because we love. The goal of discipline is not just to get your anger out, the goal of discipline is to help the individual grow. That's why we discipline our children. Once it's fine. You didn't know better. But I'm going to discipline you the next time you try to touch that blue flame on the stove because I want to teach you not to do that again. And that's why the Lord disciplines us. Just like in your own home, discipline takes place when a wrong is committed. For God, that wrong is sin, any sin. And contextually, the sin is not judging, literally distinguishing or determining, not judging the body rightly, he says, in the context of communion. He disciplines when we don't judge the body rightly. I want to, be, to clarify something for you here. Here. This is not referring to our, our own bodies in terms of the self-examination. This is talking about the body of Christ represented in communion. If you don't judge the bread, the body of Christ rightly, when taking communion, you may face God's discipline. This goes back to what we talked about last week in recognizing and appreciating the seriousness of the Lord's table. When we come without a proper reverence for God and acknowledgement of the holiness of the Lord's table, then you are subject to discipline. And again, discipline comes to correct sin and sinful behavior. And in order to fully appreciate why the Lord's table is so, so important, that just having the wrong mindset could incur God's discipline, you really have to go back to last week's lesson. Part of this, though, is the fact that we are commemorating the New Covenant. And back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we saw very clearly what happened to Israel when they were unfaithful to their covenant. Tens of thousands slaughtered. To be clear, as a side note, it's not that sin doesn't matter or isn't disciplined by God outside of communion. But the significance and holiness of communion heightens the depth of that sin because you are approaching and commemorating God with an unrepentant heart. My wife and I are very strict with screen time. My boys need permission to even get on the iPad that belongs to them. I am very strict about reminding them that I gave it to you, but I bought it. It's mine. But this iPad, he actually won in a school raffle. It's his. (laughs) But we still dictate how much time they get on it. On a side note, I I even remind, it's my oldest son who has it, I even remind the other boys, it is his. And so the fact that he's sharing with you guys is huge. He doesn't need to do that. But back to the point we don't like it when they disobey and they get on the iPad without permission, sneak into their closet or whatever it may be. That's bad enough. But you understand how it would be especially bad if he was sneaking in under the table when it's family time at dinner, in the very presence of the one he is disobeying. You get that? Sin is still sin in God's eyes, but there's something particularly egregious and in your face and rebellious to do it at the Lord's table. And so we need to perceive the symbolism. Yes, symbolism. But still, the importance of that symbolism. We get that. We get the importance of symbols. I saw some of you physically sit upright when I mentioned the burning of the flag because it bothers you, because you care about this country. Some of you, thankfully, have fought for this country in the military. And that is the perspective we need to have of the symbolism of the bread and the cup. I want to close by taking a few minutes by explaining some dangers of how we can take this unworthily on a more big picture, sometimes even theological level. So we've seen three steps in preparing for communion, prize the significance, practice self-examination, perceive the symbolism, and I want to give you a a, a few uh, issues that kind of help you have the right, right mindset. Some of these won't resonate with you. Some of these you've heard of, but you know are totally wrong, and you would never do them. But I want to share with you some dangers that would lead you to take them in an unworthy manner, understanding that the primary way, of course, is unconfessed, unrepented sin. That should be your main concern. But there are other issues floating around. The first, I'm going to give you a bunch of isms. The first is ritualism. Ritualism. And under this, I I put following certain views that are unbiblical, they are man-made. The first under ritualism is something that you may have heard of called transubstantiation. It is practiced uh, most commonly and created by the Roman Catholics. The priest consecrates the bread and the wine, and at the moment that he consecrates it, they believe that the body and blood of Christ is actually present. In other words, the liquid and the bread actually become the physical body, the flesh, and the physical blood of Jesus Christ. And thus, though it does not taste like it, you are eating the flesh and drinking the literal blood, literal, not symbolic, blood of Jesus Christ. Since it is a sacrament of the Catholic Church, it is thus taught that taking these elements can actually get you to obtain forgiveness of sins. So, I can actually trick a child or, you know, shove it in an unbeliever's mouth and because they swallow those elements, they're forgiven of their sins. Transubstantiation. Martin Luther came along, obviously didn't like that view, so he came up with what's called consubstantiation. Lutherans still practice this. They didn't want to go so far as to say that it became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So they say, well, there's a real physical presence of Christ's body, quote, in, with, and under the elements of the bread and the wine. It was a sort of compromise to not agree with Catholics, but still kind of agree with Catholics. Ritualism. Going along with something that's unbiblical because your church or your religion teaches it is taking the elements in an unworthy manner. And think about it. To actually approach these elements thinking that you could be saved through them, that's no good. And the clear testimony of Scripture tells us that Jesus, again, didn't cut a piece of a fl- his flesh and bleed into a cup and give it to the disciples. He said, this is as it represents. We talked about this last week. Uh, The second ism that could lead you to take it unworthily is individualism. Individualism. Again, back then they took it with Passover, but then in the early church they would have this meal, which we saw that the Corinthians are, are perverting. But the bread and cup was one loaf of bread broken and passed among the people. Take this bread in remembrance of me. And it was one cup or at least one symbolic cup that the the guest of honor or the head of the household would lift up. And let's take this together. Some churches still do that where they'll break a big uh, piece of bread and they'll pass it out. And then they'll pass around one single cup. Um, it, It really emphasized the unity and the fellowship of the church. There's no indication in the New Testament of communion being done outside of a local assembly of believers. I get that there are some people who can't make it to church. I miss communion. Can you come to my house and house and take communion? And and uh, you know maybe some people are given communion on their deathbed. But again, a lot of times we do that because of our thinking of transubstantiation, where I need to take this before I die because I need my sins forgiven. And so that's why often it's the priests you see at the church doing this along with last rites. Individualism. And we also saw uh, the danger of this back in 1017 when we read, "...since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." Communion is one of the strongest markers of fellowship. Communion is one of the key indicators that we all believe the same thing and we're in it together. Participating in all that entails our being together, emphasizes our togetherness. Not only does communion identify us with Christ, it identifies us with one another. Identifying with Christ is identifying with all who are in Christ, and communion helps us with that. Thirdly, formalism. We've talked about this going through the motions without the right heart. Formalism. We've talked about this a lot. This is one of the main themes of this whole passage, this whole series. I want to add that there is another sinful and dangerous act of formalism. This is important. I have yet to mention this. But this is formalism, and it is dangerous, and it is taking, actually not taking, communion in an unworthy manner, if I can put it this way. So formalism is just going through the motions of taking communion without the right heart. Yes. But also just going through the motions of not taking communion. What do I mean by this? There are some who don't take communion once in a while because they understand this passage and have unconfessed sin, and that is a wonderful thing. But sometimes people get so used to not taking communion and not confessing their sin and not dealing with their sin, they get just used to, well, I just don't take communion anymore. That's another twisted form of formalism, and it's very bad. It is avoiding communion in an unworthy manner. Now, I'm not saying in any way to take it in an unworthy manner so somehow you'll take it in a worthy manner. I'm saying deal with your sin and stop being used to coming and our church the first Sunday of the month ah, didn't have time to deal with it this month. Deal with it. Today. Right now. It's so much worse to just be content with your sin than to have the right heart attitude once a month. We need to have the right heart attitude all the time. Take it seriously. And then finalism, universalism. This usually would be more something that church leaders are guilty of. You've been to churches this, where they stand up and say, we're taking communion today. And if you do not have a relationship with Christ, no matter where you are, you are free to take this communion. No, you are not. You're free in the sense that we're not going to manhandle you and force you not to take it because we don't know your heart. We don't know where you stand. But God is very clear. This is for believers only. And so if you are in a place where you can declare that or decide upon that in your church or in your organization, understand that this is a gross misappropriation of communion to say that anyone can take it. It's universalism. It's a practical it's just a practical offshoot of universalism as a belief. All Everyone goes to heaven. You know, universalism has gone gone so far that some are now saying if you are an atheist, as long as you are a committed atheist, you'll go to heaven. It's sickening. But in our passage, in our text, take communion seriously. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a wonderful reminder of the beauty of communion and communion itself. I pray, Father, that we would not just be focused on making sure that we take communion in a worthy manner, but that we would be focused on being a follower of Christ in a worthy manner, to live our lives in a worthy manner, to eat our breakfast, take our commute, raise our children in a worthy manner, not just externally doing the right things, but having the right heart. May we hate, hate sin, Lord. May we love what you love and hate what you hate in the world and in our lives. And may we deal with sin radically, violently, viciously, thoroughly. Not just next month before communion, but every day, including today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close.